Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For today's show, I'm going to be reviewing four brand new films. Surprisingly, there's only one that is a Netflix original, and that is mainly because I have been branching out into other podcasting platforms, HBO Max, Disney Plus, Hulu, and that's about it for the ones to which I subscribe. I am seriously considering getting Amazon Prime, especially considering that there is a movie that's going to be premiering on Amazon Prime next month, about which I am very excited. But for the movies in hand, the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Tom and Jerry, which is a 2021 film, which is the first Tom and Jerry movie that is a live action and animation hybrid. It is actually not the first uh, Tom and Jerry movie. That would be the uh, the movie that's called Tom and Jerry the Movie. That's its actual title. It was released in Germany in 1992 and came out in the United States in July of 1993 and was a critical and commercial failure. Even though it was fully animated and admittedly had some very good animation, it made some very criminal choices with Tom and Jerry, particularly A, in Tom and Jerry the movie, the 1992 film, Tom and Jerry spoke, which is probably one of the most criminal things you can do to Tom and Jerry. They are much funnier when they don't talk. And two, Tom and Jerry teamed up together in the film to fight some sort of uh, villain. And it's been years, actually decades, since I've seen Tom and Jerry the movie. But I remember, despite the good animation and the clever cameo by Droopy Dog, Tom and Jerry the movie from 1992 was a disappointment. Because of that, and also because of other disappointing live-action animation hybrids that aren't Who Framed Roger Rabbit or Space Jam, and I'm talking particularly about movies like Garfield, for instance, as well as the sequel, A Tale of Two Kitties, I was prepared to be disappointed by the 2021 Tom and Jerry movie. However, I give every movie a chance, and I gave this one a chance, and I'm really glad I did because it is much funnier and also much better animated than I expected it to be. So in this Tom and Jerry movie, and I call it this Tom and Jerry movie uh, just to differentiate it from the 1992 fully animated movie, it reveals how Tom and Jerry first meet and form their rivalry. Is it an origin story? I guess you could call it that, but mainly it is just, you know, Tom and Jerry doing what they do best, which is fighting each other and causing chaos all around them, not to mention in a live action world. And the director of this movie is Tim Story, who is an African-American director. He's best known for having directed the very first Barbershop movie, which was a very good film. His follow-up to that was unfortunately not Barbershop 2, even though Barbershop 2 was very good. He followed that up with Taxi, starring uh, Jimmy Fallon and Queen Latifah, which didn't get Jimmy Fallon's movie career off to a very good start. But fortunately, years later, nearly a decade later, actually, he bounced back as being 
host of The Tonight Show, and he's doing very well for himself there. Now, unfortunately, Tim Story also directed the two Fantastic Four movies, the one from 2005, which starred Jessica Alba, Michael Chitlis, and several other actors, which was subpar, even though it had some good actors in it and it had some very good special effects. He also directed 2007's Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver, Silver Surfer, which both were, I think, decent films, but they were just kind of goofy. As a matter of fact, the reason I didn't rate 2015's Fan Four Stick, starring Miles Teller and Kate Mara as one of the worst films of 2015, was because I could see what they were trying to do with it, but the problem with the Fantastic Four movies, the 2005 one and the 2015 one, was the former didn't take itself seriously enough, and Fan Four Stick took itself too seriously, in addition to other things. But after Tim Story directed the Fantastic Four movies, he also directed Think Like a Man and Think Like a Man 2, both of which I haven't seen, but they're based on a book of a similar title, Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man, which was written by Steve Harvey. Tim Story also directed Ride Along and Ride Along 2, which I also unfortunately didn't get to see, but I hear very good things about it. And he also directed La- uh, rather 2019's Shaft, which wasn't nearly as good as the 1971 original or the 2000 semi-sequel remake directed by John Singleton. So Tim's story has been hit or miss. So because of that and also some of the things that happened to live-action animation hybrids that aren't Who Framed Roger Rabbit, as I said, I was skeptical about this movie going into it, but... Much to my surprise, I really enjoyed it. It is very fun to watch. It gets to the essence of what makes Tom and Jerry a good on-screen pair. In addition to that, and this is the big seller for me, the animation style, even though it is in a live-action world, is true to the original Hanna-Barbera cartoons And being as big a fan of Tom and Jerry as I have been since I was a kid, I was very, very happy with that. Now, the animation style in this is largely, it's it's in a 2D animation style, but it is very obvious that unlike Who Framed Roger Rabbit, they did use computers in this film for Tom and Jerry and the other animated characters in this universe. I don't have a problem with that, though, because I think the animation was updated enough for modern movies, but also stylistic enough for the original 1940s and 1950s cartoons, and I think that worked very well. In addition, very much like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I think that the technology allowed for the interactions between Tom and Jerry and the live-action worlds to be seamless. Like for instance, there was a moment where Tom has a pratfall where he falls through a a floor and the imprint of him falling through the floor looked seamless, almost as seamless as it did in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And it's actually a lot better than I'm comparing Tom and Jerry, the 2021 film to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, because even though it's not better than Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a a very tough act to follow, and I highly doubt there's any modern movie that would 
follow that film. But Tom and Jerry comes very close. And as I said, the animation style is very true to the original. When they interact with human beings in this film, like, for instance, Chloe Grace Moretz, who plays the main character Kayla, or Michael Pena, who plays the nemesis Terrence, they're... I did not think for a second that these were animated characters that were interacting with live action characters. I thought that these were characters interacting with other characters because the transition between the two is truly seamless. And I do have to give the animators and director Tim Story a lot of credit for for doing that seemingly effortless combination. Although it looks effortless, but my guess is considering how hard it is to make a movie that is seamlessly live action animated, it probably wasn't. So anyway, in this movie, Tom and Jerry are in New York City and Tom dreams of becoming a pianist and actually has aspirations to play the piano alongside John Legend. And Jerry is just in search of a new home. But eventually Tom and Jerry find each other and the interactions between the two are, of course, as you might expect, very chaotic. And Kayla Forrester, who's played in this movie by Chloe Grace Moretz, is a woman who lives in New York City who works a series of odd jobs. It's obvious that she's probably doing some sort of tasks like TaskRabbit or Uber, and she ends up literally bumping into Tom, which causes her to uh, actually drop her laundry that she's supposed to deliver to another customer. But then when Kayla gets fired from her series of odd jobs, she visits the Royal Gate Hotel and cons her way into a position as an events manager. And the Royal Gate Hotel is fictional, but it's very much like the Ritz-Carlton. It's a very high-profile hotel where there are these two it couples who have a large following on Instagram. Their names are Prita Mehta, and her fiancé is named Ben. Prita Mehta, by the way, is played by a lovely Indian actress whose name is Paliva Sharda, and her soon-to-be husband, Ben, is played by SNL Weekend Update um, head writer and anchor Colin Jost. Colin Jost is not my favorite comic actor, but I think in this movie he plays a guy you'd expect him to play. He's a guy who's wealthy and is showering his fiance with gifts, and he also has a penchant for really bad puns. Probably to a fault, and I think this movie in, engages you <laughs> or indulges you in Colin Jost's dad joke abilities. For instance, there's one groanworthy joke where Colin Jost gets this skateboard that is so high tech that it has Wi-Fi, and his fiance Prita asks him. Why do you need a skateboard that has Wi-Fi? And he replies, and I'm not making this up, why the fi not? It's grown worthy, but it is Colin Jost, so we'll give it a slide. But anyway, the two of them are planning a very elaborate wedding at this high-profile hotel, and Colin Jost's character has the idea of the two of them riding in on elephants. 
because she's Indian, which is, I think, in a sense, a little offensive. But in this movie, it kind of works, where you have this clueless rich white guy who just really doesn't know what's acceptable and what isn't. I think it works here, and it also proves a big opportunity for Tom and Jerry to wreak havoc. Will they or won't they? And will Kayla get the two of them under control? I think that the movie is a bit predictable as to what's going to happen at the wedding, seeing that this is Tom and Jerry. And also, by the way, Ben, Colin Joe's character, owns a bulldog who you wouldn't expect him to own, whose name is Butch. And he is the same Butch Bulldog who is in the classic Tom and Jerry cartoons. Again, Butch has this moment where he sees Tom and he starts barking out of control when Ben and Preda are checking into the Royal Gate Hotel. And Ben is trying to calm him down and he tells the bellhop, please excuse my dog, he's animated. Again, it's grown worthy, but what you'd expect from Colin Jost. Seriously. But again, it was a great way to tie in Butch here. And I also liked, in addition to the animation with Tom and Jerry and Butch, virtually every animal in this movie is animated in that classic early Hanna-Barbera style. I think that was a great move rather than making the characters into more obviously CGI animated characters. And I'm thinking particularly of Garfield from his 2004 movie where he was voiced by Bill Murray. Garfield in that movie looked ugly. And the movie overall was just very sugar-coated and didn't really get to the essence of Garfield as a character. Seeing as I grew up reading those comics and also watched the Garfield and Friends cartoon as a kid, I was profoundly disappointed. And Bill Murray actually didn't want to be in the movie, but that's another story for another time. Tim's story, as well as the producers of this film, not to mention the screenwriters, got Tom and Jerry absolutely correct. Kevin Costello is actually the one who wrote the screenplay and the story of this movie, and it is, of course, based on characters created by William Hanna and Joseph Barbera. Did this movie have some studio interference? Maybe it did, but if it did, it had the right kind of studio interference. I bet that there were some studio executives who might have wanted to have Tom and Jerry look more 3D like Garfield in that 2004 abomination of a movie, or even worse, like real cats like the Disney animated remake, the unnecessary Disney animated remake, I might add, of The Lion King. I'm so glad they didn't. They got to really the purity of what makes Tom and Jerry funny, and they blended them seamlessly into modern-day New York. As you might have expected from listening to my commentary, I'm not the biggest fan of Colin Jost, but... I do think that this movie worked. I really liked Chloe Grace Moretz as sort of the foil of these two characters who might not have meant to be the foil, but you you can't really get into in the middle of a fight with a cat and a mouse without getting hurt yourself. But Tom and Jerry was a much, much better film than I expected it to be. It is probably one of Tim Story's best films, and it is one of the best 
animated hybrid films since Space Jam or Looney Tunes back in action. But unlike the aforementioned film, this movie does not get bogged down with celebrity cameos or product placement, which is why I'm giving Tom and Jerry my rating of a knockout. It is very well animated, blends live action and animation very well, and best of all, Tom and Jerry don't talk, and they are fun to watch when they are just fighting and going at each other. And that is all I asked for in a Tom and Jerry movie. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The United States versus Billie Holiday. This is a film that is a Hulu original film, and it is very, very well done. It seems like it is based on a conspiracy theory, but it is actually based on part of a book called Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. It's written by a British writer by the name of Johan Hari, and it it actually deals, it doesn't deal entirely with Billie Holiday, but Billie Holiday is a significant part of that nonfiction book. The person who wrote the screenplay was Suzanne Laurie Parks, who is an African-American writer who has previously written such films as Girl 6, which was her debut as a screenwriter. That movie was directed by Spike Lee, and to be honest, it is one of the very few Spike Lee joints I have actually seen. After that, she actually wrote the teleplay for the the TV movie Their Eyes Were Watching God, which is based on a novel by Zora Neale Hurston and starred Halle Berry. She also wrote the adaptation of a screenplay called Native Son, which is an independent film that's directed by Rashid Johnson, which I have to be honest, I have also not seen. That's based on a book by Richard Wright, a very famous book, by the way, very much like Zora Neale Hurston. And this is her first screenplay since Native Son. I actually feel kind of bad that I didn't get to see Native Son, but The United States versus Billie Holiday is not exactly a biopic on Billie Holiday, not like Lady Sings the Blues. Lady Sings the Blues is the 1972 movie about Billie Holiday starring Diana Ross, Billy D. Williams, and Richard Pryor. And when Lady Sings the Blues was being made into a movie, a lot of people, particularly jazz purists, were very unhappy that Diana Ross, who had no previous acting experience, first of all, And secondly, doesn't sound like Billie Holiday or look like Billie Holiday. A lot of people were annoyed for those two reasons that Billy, that Diana Ross was chosen to play Billie Holiday. But to Diana Ross's credit, she did silence many critics by playing her in that movie. The movie isn't perfect, but Diana Ross, despite not sounding exactly like Billie Holiday, did an excellent acting job, probably had one of the best 
debuts of any actor or actress in a film, let alone a, a lead a lead in a film. And while she never actually followed that up with a better film, she was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role for that film. But I do have to say that Billie Holiday in the United States versus Billie Holiday is played by Andra Day, who doesn't have a wealth of acting experience. She's no more for her singing, particularly her jazz and her neo-soul, than she is for her acting. But she has been in a couple of films and therefore has more acting experience than Diana Ross. But maybe even more so, she made this film and proved to just about everyone who watches it that Billie Holiday was the woman that Andrew Day was born to play. Not only does she look a lot like Lady Day, she also sounds a lot like Lady Day and sings her own songs in this film. And I think that anyone who's going to watch this film is not going to think this is Andrew Day playing Billie Holiday. They're going to think this is Billie Holiday. I also should note that the director of the film is Lee Daniels, who has the distinction of being the second African-American and the second black person to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Director. Before the United States versus Billie Holiday, Lee Daniels directed Shadow Boxer, which was his debut. His next film was Precious, or Precious based on the novel Pushed by Sapphire, its complete title, which earned him his nomination for Best Director. After that, he directed The Paperboy and then Lee Daniels' The Butler in 2013 after that. He directed a couple of episodes of Empire in 2015 and Star in 2017 before directing the movie Good People in 2020. Now, I've only seen Precious. I don't don't think I've seen The Paperboy, and I didn't get a chance to see uh, Lee Daniels' The Butler, and I'm actually sorry to have not seen that. I just haven't gotten the chance. But this is my first film of Lee Daniels that I've seen since Precious, and he does a great job directing this. So, this mo- why is the United States against Billie Holiday? Well, there are race-related reasons that are very obvious, especially when you hear some of the dialogue spoken by an FBI agent in this film whose name is Joe Glazer, who's played by Dusan Dukic. But it they are against Billie Holiday in this film, not only for race racist reasons, but also because of Billie Holiday's popularity and I would probably say second to the racism is her notorious drug use. And this movie does not start where Lady Sings the Blues starts, where Billie Holiday's an aspiring jazz singer who gets to that top and goes into rehab. And even though Lady Sings the Blues is not a perfect film, Some of the parts where Diana Ross as Billie Holiday is in prison and going through withdrawal symptoms are really good. There aren't as many scenes like that in this film, but I give this movie a lot of credit because it's not copying Lady Sings the Blues. I think it has, even though it's a similar subject, of course, identical subject, you could argue, it has its own originality and its own unique take on Billie Holiday's life. So it follows Billie Holiday 
during her career as she is targeted by not only the FBI, but the Federal Department of Narcotics with an undercover sting operation led by a black federal agent, Jimmy Fletcher, with whom she had a tumultuous affair. And this is probably one of the big selling points of this film. Jimmy Fletcher is played in this film by a fine young actor by the name of Trevante Rhodes. And Trevante Rhodes has been in a couple of films. He was in Moonlight, uh, probably most prominently. He also had a supporting role in the movie Bird Box, which despite coming out in 2018, I have not actually seen yet. He was in the remake of The Predator, and he was also in in an Afghanistan war film called 12 Strong, neither of which were particularly ones about which to write home. But the fact that he was in Moonlight and he did so well in that film is probably a testament to how well he did in this film as well. There are also some really good supporting performances, including one from or uh, from Leslie Jordan, who's a very effeminate and very short Southern man who plays a transvestite and gossip columnist named Reginald Lord Divine, who is frameworking this film by interviewing Billie Holiday for his gossip column. And there's actually a really good interchange between Leslie Jordan and Andrew Day, where Leslie Jordan as Reginald Lord Divine asks Billie Holiday a very tacky question that probably no white person should ever ask a black person. And that is, what is it like to be a colored person? And even today, I mean, colored is a a tacky term, but if you're talking to a black person, particularly if it's a famous person, how would they know what it's like to be a white person, let alone a person of color? And Andrew Day replies, you wouldn't ask that kind of question to Doris Day. And without missing a beat, Leslie Jordan replies to that by saying, well, Doris Day isn't colored. (laughs) That's a very good exchange between the two of them. Also, there are some good performances here, uh, supporting performances, I might add, by Natasha Lyonne, who plays an acquaintance of Andrew Day named Tallulah Bankhead, who might be an enabler of Billie Holiday's drug problems. But this is a quality Billie Holiday film, a quality biopic at that, that I don't know exactly if I should say it's better than Lady Sings the Blues. I will say, though, that Andrew Day was perfect for this role of Billie Holiday. I hope she doesn't get typecast because of it. I would like to see her play somebody else other than a singer, but if she turns in one dynamic performance in her lifetime, then This is the one she's going to turn in, and I think that is great on her part. I also really liked the relationship between between her and Trevante Rose, and I do think this movie doesn't pull punches when it comes to the ugliness of drug addiction, but it also holds certain people accountable for enabling Billie Holiday and her drug addiction, something you wouldn't have gotten from Lady Sings the Blues. I also should note that in Lady Sings the Blues, Billie Holiday's performance at Carnegie Hall was the end note of that film. And I think Lady Sings the Blues was very clever in showing its epilogue, its written epilogue, rather than its subtitles in newspaper headlines. But my point I'm making is, in Lady Sings the Blues... 
Billie Holiday's performance at Carnegie Hall, which was a turning point in her career, was the end of that film, but nearly the beginning of this film. Unlike Lady Sings the Blues, the United States versus Billie Holiday paints an ugly picture of drug addiction, but an accurate one, while also stating that there were other factors in play with Billie Holiday despite or besides her drug addiction. This is a fantastic film. I think this is Lee Daniels' best film since Precious, and it is a knockout. It is a role that, as I said, Andrew Day was born to play, but not only that, I think any Billie Holiday impersonator, and there are some out there, could do a solid imitation of Billie Holiday. But I do think that Andrew Day, to her credit, even though she looks and sounds like Billie Holiday on stage, she turns in a commanding performance even when she's not on the stage, when she's in her dressing room, when she's being arrested by the feds, and most especially when she's sharing scenes with Travante Rhodes. It is a fantastic film. I couldn't speak more enthusiastically about it, uh, but I should also note that the set design, this being 1940s and 1950s Harlem, is great as well. Set design, costume design, there isn't a fault I could find in the United States versus Billie Holiday. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Mauritanian. And this is a film about Mohamedou Old Salahi, who is imprisoned in Guantanamo Bay and is fighting for freedom after being detained and imprisoned without charge by the U.S. government for years. Now, when you hear the name the Mauritanian, you might be asking yourself, what is a Mauritanian? If you are asking yourself that, don't feel bad. I was asking myself the exact same thing. Well, somebody who is a Mauritanian is somebody who comes from the Islamic Republic of Mauritania, which is a country in Northwest Africa. I have to confess that even though <laughs> I would like to think I'm smarter than a fifth grader, I did not know Mauritania was a country, but lo and behold, it is the 11th largest sovereign state in Africa and is bordered by the Atlantic Ocean to the west, Western Sahara to the north and northwest, Algeria to the northeast, Mali to the east and southeast, and Senegal to the southwest. The Mauritanian in this movie is a man who is very well educated and actually was um, somebody who was very unfairly imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay for um, for basically being suspicious, or the U.S. government was suspicious of him for being linked to Al-Qaeda. And let me get a little bit more information about him. 
he actually was um, raised in Germany, but he traveled from Germany to Afghanistan in December of 1990 to support the Mujahideen. And at the time, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan was attempting to topple the communist government of Mohammed Najibullah. <laughs> Sorry about uh, pronouncing these names. And a couple of times, this man, uh, Mohammedo Old Salahi, was um, trained by Al Qaeda, but he was not actually linked to the 9-11 attacks. But if you remember the weeks, the months after 9-11, America was a different place. Actually, America changed completely and never changed back after the events of September 11th, but especially in the weeks and months after 9-11, Mr. Salahi was held under the authority of the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force enacted on September 18th, 2001. And because we were still, as a country, shaken by the events that happened literally one week earlier, uh, nobody really questioned people being detained um, for allegedly being part of Al-Qaeda. So the Mauritanian has a very strong subject in its storytelling here. But the movie actually falls short when the movie keeps cutting back and forth between the time that Mr. Salahi, who in this movie is played by a fine young actor by the name of Tahar Rahim is arrested and imprisoned and the time that he is appealing his case to ACLU lawyer Nancy Hollander, who's played very well in this movie by Jodie Foster, and her assistant, Terry Duncan, who's played by Shailene Woodley. And there's also a strong supporting performance in this movie by Benedict Cumberpatch, who plays an American named Stuart Couch, who is the prosecutor in Mr. Salahi's appeal to the United States to be removed from Guantanamo Bay. And the movie actually has a startling statistic at the end that says that a vast majority of the prisoners who are being held at Guantanamo Bay were not actually charged with the crime. And Mohamedou Al-Salahi is one of those people who wasn't. But the movie, A, gets lost in its, I think, almost too ambitious mission to tell a compelling story by cutting back and forth between two periods rather than telling the story straight. And I feel like that, A, dragged the pace of the movie and also, B, made the movie a lot more needlessly complicated. And in the end, there is a very sobering statistic about the result of Mr. Salahi's fight to be removed from Guantanamo Bay, which makes the ending initially not as happy as one might be led to believe without giving too much away if I didn't give too much away already. So there are some very strong acting performances. The four actors that I mentioned, Tahar Rahim, Jodie Foster, Shailene Woodley, and Benedict Cumberpatch, 
do well with the job they're given. But the editing of this movie really brought it down from being a great film, in my opinion. It's directed by Scottish director Kevin MacDonald, and Kevin MacDonald has directed several great movies. Probably one of my favorite, my favorite um, direct directorial efforts from him was The Last King of Scotland from 2006, which starred Forrest Whitaker as the brutal Ugandan dictator Idi Amin and had a great breakout performance from James McAvoy as a fictional character who was the moral compass of the story and also played Idi Amin's doctor, as well as reluctant advisor. That movie also had great supporting performances by Kerry Washington and David Oyelowo, amongst other actors. Those are just the most well-known. And Kevin MacDonald had previously directed several documentaries. He made his debut as a director for, with the TV movie documentary, The Making of an Englishman. And he directed several other documentaries that I have to confess that I haven't seen. The movie The Last King of Scotland was the very first movie I saw from him. And Forrest Whitaker, who's usually a big teddy bear, was scary in that film. Legitimately scary and won a much-deserved Oscar for Best Actor for that film. I also should note that Kevin McDonald also directed a pretty good documentary about Whitney Houston, which was simply called Whitney. That was very good. And there are not any other films of Kevin McDonald's that I've seen, but this is not one of his best, The Mauritanian. And the main reason for that is because of its lopsided storytelling brought as a direct result of its cutting back and forth between time periods. I wish it had started from the beginning or maybe sort of cut to the middle, then started from the beginning and told it linearly from here on out. And I'm not saying that every movie should be that way, but when you're talking about somebody who is being arrested as well as trying to appeal his case and trying to get out of Guantanamo Bay, it really is best for this kind of film to be told from the beginning to the end and not really any other clever way. But I really should say that I was disappointed by the Mauritanian for that reason, but it gets my rating of a checkout because I do think that this film's saving grace is the fact that it has great acting performances by Tahar Rahim, Jodie Foster, and the others. And I also thought that it brings to light why Guantanamo Bay should be closed. Because it really should be. It was one of the things that Barack Obama promised to do when he was running for president in 2008. And with all due res- and not taking anything away from Barack Obama, he tried. He signed an executive order to close down Guantanamo Bay. Unfortunately, executive orders are not laws. I mean, which is which can be good and bad sometimes, but in the case of Guantanamo Bay, it should have been closed then, it should be closed now, and I think that this movie is good in the sense that it makes a great argument as to why it should be closed. So, I think that's a pretty good takeaway.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is my only Netflix original film because Netflix didn't come out with a lot of original movies this week. They're usually the front runner, but I think, admittedly, that they've got a lot of original films and series on their platform. And they're not hurting themselves by taking maybe a few weeks off, if that makes any sense. But the Netflix original film that I will be reviewing is Pele, or Pele, which is how the Brazilian people pronounce that soccer player's name. So I'm going to pronounce him Pele because that's how I've always known his name, and that's probably the Spanish way rather than the Portuguese way of pronouncing his name. Pele is a Brazilian former professional footballer, and by footballer I mean a soccer player, whose real name is Edson Arantes de Nascimento, and he was born on October 23, 1940, and in the mid-1950s, he put Brazil on the map in terms of their uh, World Cup. In other words, Brazil wasn't known for very much. I think maybe Rio de Janeiro was known for its parties and its beaches, which it still is. But in terms of football, and I I will say uh, football as opposed to soccer because I really think that soccer should be called football because in the American sport known as football, only one person puts their foot on the ball. Whereas in international football, just about everybody does, except maybe sometimes the goalie. But either way, Pele was probably the first superstar international athlete of the TV era, of course. And I think unquestionably the first black athlete of international renown of the TV era. Before Pele, of course, we had Jesse Owens and we had Joe Lewis, Jack Johnson and Jackie Robinson, but they were before the TV TV era. Of course, they got a lot of publicity in newspapers all around the world, and of course in film reels, but it was really Pele who came about in the era of TV, right when not just Americans, but people all over the world were getting TV sets, and TV was not only a legitimate way to get entertainment, but it was also a great way to get news and sports. And not only that, but Pele made Brazil a powerhouse when it came to football and the World Cup. And there is a bit of a challenge when you're making a documentary about somebody who's particularly well-known. Do you go through all the basic encyclopedic facts that hardcore fans already know to appeal to people who don't know him? Or do you go another route where you go deeper into his reputation as a, a footballer and maybe get into some some biographical information about him that is not particularly well known? Well, I do think that the filmmakers do put a balance on the, the Pele that we know as well as the Pele that we don't know, but... One of the things that really killed this movie, I think, was even though it had a wealth of found footage, I thought that the movie really faulted when it came to giving you 
a time and place. There were several times where we are told what uh, that Pele is playing in the World Cup, but we don't know what World Cup. Sometimes we know what city it's in, but we don't know which year because the subtitles don't tell us. In fact, there were a couple of times where I was watching this film at home and I was screaming at the TV like that does any good. What year is this? Come on, man. Tell me. But I I think other than that, I think Pele is a good documentary about a well-known figure, but probably not the best that I've seen. But I did like the fact that you actually see where Pele is now. It has a wealth of interviews by other Brazilian teammates of his, as well as people who previously coached him. And these are modern-day interviews, as well as interviews from back in the 50s and 60s that really ties this film together particularly well. And in 1958, Pele was a young prodigy of a soccer player. You know, he was the the new bright upstart. And by 1970, after facing a bunch of setbacks, including a military coup in Brazil, as well as some injuries he endured on the on the football field, he made a great comeback in 1970. And that's where the film ends. So I don't think that this film is great in the sense that there are crucial moments in Pele's history that aren't given the information that you need in subtitles that otherwise people who follow football like their life depends on it would know, but other people, particularly those in America, maybe wouldn't know. And that's not exactly spelling things out for people who are more familiar. It's giving this this story and the time in which it takes place context. So Pele falls short of being a document, a great documentary for that reason, but I do give it a high checkout because it, it has really good interviews by, from Pele as well as several other people who played alongside him. The archive footage is really good, and it is great to see Pele nowadays where he's not nearly as mobile as he used to be. After all, he is... Um, over 80 years old, but it, it is great to see what he's doing now. It's great to see that he is still doing particularly well. And I, I think this movie might provide a decent beginner's perspective for anyone, for the very few people out there, maybe even millennials and generation Z about who Pele is and why he was important. But the movie needed to be much better organized. And with that little bit of organization, it could have been better than good. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this film, for this film, for this show, I am now going to get into movies that are going to be premiering on 
as many podcasting platforms as I can fit in the less than 10 minutes I have to uh, do this show. So there are sites that are giving me what's coming out on Netflix, what's coming out on Hulu, on Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, and so on and so forth. But they're not telling me, unfortunately, uh, all of them on one site. But I'm going to do my best to get into what's going to be premiering on Netflix for the week of March 1st through March 5th, 2021. And there's one documentary that's going to be premiering on Monday, March 1st. It is a documentary, and it is a Netflix original, and it is called Biggie, I Got a Story to Tell. This is a documentary on famed rapper The Notorious B.I.G., who died way too young as a result of an assassin's bullet. I'd be very interested in seeing this film because any films about hip-hop, particularly hip-hop history, are worth a look in my book, particularly music I grew up listening to. And even though my parents probably didn't want me to listen to Biggie Smalls, I definitely did. And I had his albums Ready to Die and Life After Death. I'm probably one of the few white people who could tell you honestly that I was a fan of Tupac and Biggie before they died. But anyway, Biggie, I Got a Story to Tell, is going to be premiering on Netflix on Monday, March 1st. And it looks like it is the only Netflix original that will be premiering on Netflix on that day. The other movies that are going to be premiering, and there are many of them, are not Netflix originals, but let me just read to you what those other movies are. A lot of them are movies that uh, have already been released years ago, if not months ago. So there's one film called Banyuki, which is a 2009 Japanese stage play about a man seeking revenge for his false imprisonment. I don't know if it is based on a Japanese stage play or if somebody set up a number of cameras on or near a Japanese stage and watched somebody act such a play out, but looks like an interesting film. Another movie that's going to be premiering, or excuse me, appearing on Netflix, I should say, is Batman Begins, which is the first film of the Dark Knight trilogy starring Christian Bale, which really changed Batman films forever and will change Batman films forever. Let's not um, get that twisted. There is a documentary called Connected, which doesn't have a year attached to it, so I assume it was made in 2021. It is a music documentary on the Argentinian DJ Hernan Cataño. Looks interesting. Crazy Stupid Love from 2011 is the rom-com starring Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone, and Julianne Moore. That's a really good, unique rom-com, one of the few that I like. Dances with Wolves is actually appearing on Netflix, and Goodfellas is actually leaving Netflix on February 28th. That's really interesting because Goodfellas is the movie that should have won the Oscar for Best Picture, but Dances with Wolves is the one that did. But I've seen Goodfellas probably about 15 times. I haven't seen Dances with Wolves once, but I actually will give it a chance because I hear some good things about it. There are some other films that are coming out too, including I Am Legend, the one starring Will Smith. Actually, I Am Legend is the name of the book upon which the story of the last man on Earth in a zombie-infested New York City is based. It was made into a movie in the 50s starring Vincent Price called The Last Man on Earth. 
And then it was made into a movie in the 70s starring Charlton Heston called The Omega Man. And I Am Legend is pretty good, but coming after The Omega Man is a very tough act to follow. But I did actually enjoy I Am Legend. I didn't think it was a great film, but I thought it was pretty good. Invictus. This is a Clint Eastwood movie. It is a biopic about Nelson Mandela, but it it tells part of Nelson Mandela's life. Nelson Mandela in this movie is played by Morgan Freeman, and this was made when Nelson Mandela was still alive, and Nelson Mandela even said that he hoped that Morgan Freeman would play him in a movie. And this is a great movie by Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood as a director is sometimes hit or miss, but when he hits, he hits very well. And this was probably his best film after Million Dollar Baby. But in this movie, Nelson Mandela is looking to unite the divided post-apartheid South Africa with rugby, of all sports. And um, South America's, excuse me, South Africa's football team, and by football I mean soccer team, was doing really well and had a huge following. Rugby didn't have quite as much of a following, but... It was the one of the first integrated sports in South Africa circa 1994. And it was a unique way to unite the country after having elected their first black president, behind whom not every South African was. Also appearing on Netflix on March 1st is Jason X from 2001, which I think is the 10th Jason Voorhees movie, Killing Gunther, which is a film that Taron Killam of Saturday Night Live wrote, direct, and starred in, which I have not actually seen, but I'd be willing to see that one because Taron Killam is a good actor and a funny guy. He was very good on SNL when he was on there. There's also Night in Rodanth from 2008. That's a romance movie about a traveling doctor sparking an affair with a married woman in North Carolina. Also, Rain Man a Best Picture winner from 1988 that deserved its Best Picture win, as well as had a great performance from Dustin Hoffman, which deservedly won the Academy, which Dustin Hoffman deservedly won his second Academy Award for Best Actor in Playing. That's a, that's a classic movie, a great movie, certainly has some sad parts, but has some very funny parts too. Also appearing on Netflix on um, March 1st is... Tenacious D in The Pick of Destiny, which surprisingly bombed at the box office, but it had Jack Black and Kyle Gass playing humorous um, caricatures of themselves where they combine and hope to become the greatest band of all time. I think that is a funny movie. It didn't get the attention it deserved when it was released in theaters in 2006, but I thought it was very funny. Also appearing on Netflix is The Dark Knight, which is the second and, yes, the best of the Nolan Batman movies. The Pursuit of Happiness from 2006, which is one of Will Smith's best performances. Training Day, which is one of Denzel Washington's best performances. And Ethan Hawke does a great job in that film as well, as well as supporting performances by the likes of Ava Mendez, Dr. Dre, and Snoop Dogg. You have Two Weeks Notice, which stars Sandra Bullock and Hugh Grant. That's from way back in 2002. And the movie Year One, which is directed by Harold Ramis and stars Jack Black and Michael Sarah, the latter of whom we haven't seen for a while, interestingly enough. 
Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.